Hey everybody, welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of September 20th, 2019. This is Charles Hain, tech writer with No Film School. We're here talking about the new Joker movie. We're talking about Adobe using automated intelligence, artificial intelligence, to come for your assistant editor jobs. We're talking about the continuation of the Raw Wars. And then we have an Ask No Film School about bad vibrations. All that this week on the No Film School podcast. So our first story this week, we're talking about the Joker movie. Why are we talking about the Joker movie? So I have to say this, and I just have to get it off my chest before I do anything else. Shout out to the Joker marketing team. This movie is the most present movie in, like, in terms of, like, stuff that's coming out soon. Every once in a while, a movie comes around and you're like, I didn't even know that was coming out. I am very aware that Joker is coming out soon in a really impressive way. Now, full disclosure, they shot in my neighborhood, and so, like, people were always talking about it when they were shooting, but, like, it's all over the press I read, it's all over my social, the marketing team has done a very good job of pushing this movie out into the consciousness, and I think that is uh, impressive, and I always like to pay credit where credit is due. I have friends in studio marketing, it is hard to create buzz, even for a big comic book movie, and I think we have to really give a shout out to this team for successfully getting a lot of people talking about Joker this early. Yeah. Let's uh, also, I mean, I, yeah, they did not shoot in my neighborhood and I am incredibly aware of everything going on with this movie. The Joker is a comic book character, but this movie from the get go was being talked about in a way that was completely different than comic book movies typically are. And that may be partly a result of the movie, but that may also be from design on the PR side. And let's be honest, it's extremely difficult to cut through the noise these days with anything. I mean, like even with a comic book character at the center of a story, things get buried. So it's a great point. Uh, Everybody knows about this movie. There's already all this backlash and backlash, backlash and fascination and discussion. And, you know, it's created buzz and a stir. And one of the reasons we are talking about it and... We've written a couple things up on No Film School about it, but we're going to write more. Is that it won the top prize at Venice, at the Venice Film Festival. It won the Golden Lion. And one of the reasons that immediately caught my attention, because we don't talk about every movie that wins every big festival award, is that this is a movie about a clown who commits crimes in the Batman series. (laughs) I mean, if you go back and you look at uh, the 1960s TV show, it's kind of hard to believe that that character Cesar Romero was playing is this the focal point of this dark, uh, deep drilling drama about, you know, and, and I think that what is it, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of takes out there. I think what the main thing to me is, okay, so maybe you want to make a movie And this movie looks a lot like King of Comedy and Taxi Driver had a baby. So I just want to point out that George just accused me of living in 1970s New York. (laughs) He basically just suggested, you guys were all here, you all heard it. George basically was like, well, since you live in 1970s Times Square with like... Do you 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 live in Midnight Cowboy? Yes. Hustlers are regularly yelling at my baby in her stroller. (laughs) Regardless... The point remains, it is an achievement to make any movie break out 
in this time, and Joker has clearly broken out. And, like, yeah, with this pop culture thing, like, I, that 60s Batman, like, I used to watch it, and then I'd watch the Jetsons, and, like, there is no chance of a Jetsons movie receiving a seven-minute standing ovation (laughs) at Venice anytime soon. Yes, this is the thing. This is the, this is the take I have about the Joker. For an aspiring creative, maybe the, the, the in is to start, you know, it used to be about specking your original stuff or, you know, trying to, you know, break, maybe the in is write the dark or unique or dramatic take on like Judy Jetson and see where that gets you because, (laughs) because IP is everything. And I mean, obviously that's, you know, hyperbolic because Judy Jetson, I don't think is IP that people are that excited about. But my point is just that like, okay, yeah, the original Batman and Gilligan's Island, right? And it, it, actually, to be honest, it wasn't the original Batman. There are plenty of Batmans on celluloid prior to that. But that 60s Batman show is a very, you know, important piece of the but Batman the, but story. But I'm going to make a counter-argument for you. The Joker, this movie is an argument for original content because Todd Phillips got the opportunity to make this movie off a career of original hits. Old school, hit movie, Original concepts, not a not like a remake of a. There was no old school 1980s TV show they were remaking. He did a few remakes. I think he did Starsky and Hutch, but old school with his big breakout hit, Hangover, original script. They made two sequels, but original script. And this is a great year for Hangover alumni. Todd Phillips doing Joker, uh, Chernobyl. Uh, it is like it is, and it is an interesting thing to remember that sometimes Chernobyl is you know, from the Hangover guy. I know it's crazy. Craig Mazin's yeah, yeah. I would just you know the yeah. the other thing I would just throw in there though about uh, about that and the Hangover is the Hangover is a sneaky, well structured movie. Don't sleep. Oh yeah, on the Hangover, it's a very well put together movie, and that's part of why it worked so well. But yeah, I think it's uh, I think that there's a lot of. You know, these are just some thoughts, but I think there's a lot to take away from the Joker's having this this crazy, you know, between the, the campaign to make it uh, known, the ability. I mean, we've seen there's been a progression of actors who've played the Joker and it kind of keeps going there, so to speak. And we're just getting another yet another deep, dark version of this character. So it's a character that fascinates actors and directors and writers and audiences. So, I mean, we, I can be glib about the fact that, you know, it's Cesar Romero's sixties Joker, but this is definitely a portrayal that's become important to cinema over the last 30 years. And I think that, uh, this movie is the latest incarnation of that. And I hope that at the very least that what this means is that we're going to see, studios and filmmakers doing maybe just slightly different things with some of this property, like taking some chances with it. I mean, and I say that and then I realize like, you know, Taxi Driver and King of Comedy are already exist and are excellent movies. So this movie is, (laughs) you know, like there's a lot. And probably reverential. Right. (laughs) Right. Yes. Yeah, but so before we move on from this topic, who was the dream cast for Dark Gilligan? <laughs> I don't know if we have like Gosling is the professor, right? Gosling is definitely the professor. That's good, without a doubt. Um, oh yeah, I, you know it's like on, Jack, Zach Galifianakis is the skipper. He's yeah, he could be. I mean, you could go super dark and just get like you know have Christian Bale be the professor and have like you know you could go with the most or Daniel Day Lewis oh, Gilligan um, or something like that. 
I mean, I don't know. I don't know. You just have fun with it and get as weird and and like you know make it a uh, yeah make it a cannibal story. I like that. All right. So this the, the, and, and bear with me, no film school podcast audience, because this is going to wrap back around to a film thing. But give me a tangent for a second. I had a friend. Uh, he used to throw what he called Herbert Hoover parties and every year he would throw a party and he would and the theme of a Herbert Hoover party was it was like depression themed so bring the alcohol that had been in your closet the longest because like everybody knows that weird like creme de menthe or whatever that's always been in like your and you're just never going to drink it and so everybody would bring that to the creme de menthe party and the winner would be the person whose thing was the last thing drank like even at this party no one was willing to touch that weird alcohol that you know probably a creme de menthe and uh, this makes me think we need to start a tradition. And I don't know if we're going to call them George Edelman parties or Ryan Koo parties. We should start a party where you have to dress up like the most embarrassing thing you've ever written on the internet. And Ryan would have to come as his posts saying Batman. Be-. Somehow he would have to say Batman Begins as the Pinnacle and now comic book movies are over. Like it's Batman as a mountain climber or something would be the costume theme. And everybody would have to find the most embarrassing thing they've written on the internet and come in costume. I think that would be a really good uh, Halloween party theme for No Film School. Moving on, uh, the next bit of news. This should be in tech news. And so maybe we're, we're going to go ahead and call this two tech stories this week. But uh, this is a story that we think is worth talking about. Adobe has released a new automatic reframing tool for social video. So if you've worked in video for a long time, you're used to working in 16 by 9 or 239, widescreen formats, very common. And it is super common, like you work on a full feature film, it's all widescreen, and then you want to make like a 30-second promo clip for social. Social is usually square, right? When you watch a video on Instagram, you don't want to watch in that square box a little 239 strip in the middle. You want to full screen it. And so usually studios are paying someone, an assistant editor, someone to reframe that video for social. There's usually some other things. They're usually adding like an end card that's like coming out now or heading to Blu-ray or whatever. So there's some other tasks that aren't getting eaten by this. But Adobe now has an artificial intelligence tool and it's a plugin. Like you just drag it on the clip and it will look at the clip, identify people in the clip and automatically reframe the shots for social for you. It is an impressive tech demo. It's not out yet. It'll be up in the next uh, release of Premiere, but the tech demo is very impressive. And this is yet another one of those ways of like simultaneously making your job easier because it's not actually super fun to do the social reframing. But on the flip side, like these are people's jobs. Like this is a job that people do. This is like a super common, like keeping assistant editors busy and their time full. And like, this is a place where post houses and independent production companies have made money. And this is now, it used to be a thing people paid for. And now it is a plug-in in Premiere. Now, one interesting thing about the studios is even though Premiere does this, studios and big houses will probably still pay someone to do this for a while. But in the indie level, this is now something that you're never going to have the ad agency do. You're just going to do yourself. I think it's almost like an underrated feature in terms of how things are going to change. Because what when you're talking, there's two interesting sides to this to me from the kind of the outside of like working and living in post-production is that we, we consume so much of our media right now on social. 
And this just means we're going to be getting more of it that way. And it's going to be a lot of people who are creating things are going to get it onto social faster and creating better content for social. And social is going to be an outlet that they're more comfortable going to or that they're more comfortable creating for. And I think we've already seen that happening, but I feel like this is going to be like a booster pack for it. But the other thing is that, yeah, how does it affect the more professional side of the industry? Because like if, a post house is billing because they need to spend time reformatting or reframing a trailer so it's going to live on instagram or you know that that all makes total sense so that's huge that's a huge change oh yeah absolutely there's also legal there's also legal and contractual obligation issues so i mean woody allen is not a filmmaker that we talk about a lot anymore because of drama and that's fair i'm more than happy to um talk about other filmmakers because that is a very complicated mess, that situation. Um, <laughs> is he still churning Woody out like Allen, a movie a year, too? I feel like it's been a couple of years I don't since think a theatrical it, release. I feel like it's been a couple of years. Yeah. yeah, I feel like he's now working with streamers. Yeah. Um, but Woody Allen famously sued. In France, there are laws protecting artistic intent. And he did not want Manhattan, which was shot 239, widescreen anamorphic. He didn't want it reframed. So he sued, I think in France, where the law protected him to preserve his right to not have it shown on television in France cropped and to preserve it reframed. And that's a big part of the history of why, uh, to show it letterboxed, which is a part of the big reason the history of why we have letterbox as a thing was the, that lawsuit in the early eighties. So there are filmmakers who very much do not want their work reframed. It is definitely something that's going to be part of a contractual negotiation. And like, I've done some of this work. I had a post house for a long time. This has been a thing that like, I've even had clients where that was all we did for them. Like somebody else did everything else and we just did all the social reframing, packaging. A lot of that is like coordinating ed cards and stuff like that. Like it's a lot more than just reframing. But almost every time I did a reframe, I always checked because the, uh, like on an Avengers movie, a director will never have the power to say you can't reframe for social. But like on, you, know, you never know, some little indie feature director that like had a real stick up there, whatever, could have been like, yeah, there's no reframing. All of my social media has to be framed exactly like it was in the movie. And so you're always checking. You're like, oh, should I be reframing this? Is this okayed? Because there are a lot of voices in the pot on that. Marketing department's always going to want to reframe because they're always going to want to punch in and get closer to the actor's faces. But you might be in a situation where you cannot. And actually, I can't remember the movie, but there was some movie where it did come down the director was a very big director, and it did come down that all the marketing was staying letterboxed. Um, we weren't reframing, even for, this was early Instagram days, so this was a while ago, but even Instagram square video, we were not going to be reframing it. It all stayed letterboxed within that box because, and I think it was a director decision. I did not know that Woody Allen story about Manhattan, but that is fascinating. And I cannot believe I didn't know that. That's the kind of thing I should be all over knowledge-wise. So thank you for teaching me that today. As the kids say, today I learned. Uh, T-I-L. Today I learned. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this. I read that in a book about the history of post-production and letterboxing, but I've only ever read it one place that I can think of. So it also could be totally anecdotal bullshit. But that is what I believe the story to be on the history of why letterboxing is even a thing. I mean, it's fascinating to talk about this side of it because so I grew up in the 1980s and a lot of versions of movies that I saw were reframed and we used to call it pan and scan. So there was a point in time where suddenly 
they started making available to those of us who were big time film nerds letterboxed versions or widescreen or director's cut and you know imagine if you can my friends watching on a regular tv screen uh the the strip of like a lawrence of arabia (laughs) that it would like the ends up happening is the majority of your screen is black because that's the letterboxing but like it was before our tvs were really built to do this so well um, and, and something I became... Yeah, it was a 4-3 TV. It was almost a square. Yeah, it was, we'd be watch, you'd watch on a square, a strip. And there's the old joke of the um, how Nolan intended it is like the meme because like he's surely a guy who doesn't want things to be reframed for your iPhone. But like the the thing that this, that this, this always comes back to me every time there's a story like this or a development in this is that it will change the way filmmakers tell their stories visually because when they think about where it's going to live, I I feel like if you, you can try to tell somebody to watch like a movie from the days where movies only lived on the big screen and they were just shot differently because the expectation was that you would only see it in that context. But when the expectation became, well, you might see it on this little TV screen at home. Well, we might want to frame things a little tighter because that's becoming more important. Or when the expectation is, well, we want them to be able to watch it on Instagram, on their iPhones or on their iPads. Well, then the, you know, it it evolves the, the craft itself. So like Manhattan, is one of the most beautifully shot movies. I feel like it's got to be oh my the God. top ever, right? So I love that it's... Gordon you know, Willis. Right, Gordon Willis, one of the greatest DPs ever. It's just a beautiful movie to look at, regardless of what's ha- what you think of the filmmaker or the, some of the content. <laughs> but I think that the, the idea is just like, to me, is that are we going to see with this another big shift in how this kind of change, another big shift in how filmmakers are shooting things? Um, and maybe, you know, for a younger generation that's coming up with all of this, it doesn't, it's not going to matter. They're not going to think about it. They're just going to focus on telling their story and that's probably good. But, uh, for those of us who love the way movies look when they're big and like gush over, uh, once upon a time in Hollywood, it's another kind of like, ah, I want, I wish more movies were made to live in that vast space. Well, I also think that this is a real reminder for filmmakers that, like, you should be involved in your marketing. You know, P.T. Anderson famously designed the poster for Magnolia. Like, you should have thoughts about that and stay engaged in that. And depending upon how you shoot, you might, like, for instance, the example they used in all of the Adobe presentations is a 239-to-1 image that's, like, super widescreen. And then they use the social crop tool to, like, cut out the edges and focus on the person. But, like, I think in one of their example person shots, it's, like, a person hiking in the wilderness. And there's this, like, big, beautiful wilderness behind them. And the wilderness gets cut out. But a lot of filmmakers aren't shooting anamorphic these days. A lot of us are shooting flat and we're cropping down to 239. So rather than cropping down to 239 and then reframing, if you're a filmmaker and you've got that original... Because when you're cropping down, you still have headroom above and headroom below... So I honestly think we might be getting close to a place where we do two masters or three. Like, it's already quite common to do multiple masters of a film at different, um, like, when you're color grading for stereo release. It, like, uh, Prometheus, they did, like, 13 different masters because they did a full color grade at each of the brightness levels of the different 3D standards. They had a lot of money and time. But, like, even, you know, if I were doing a feature in the next five years, I I hope we make stuff soon. Um I would be tempted to do a full pass at square so that I could 
reframe appropriately and make really nice looking square frames, even if it needs more headroom that I might crop out of the widescreen version or more foot room underneath the actor, but a really nice square version just so that if I'm pulling square elements for social, I'm pulling it from the widest array of options because a lot of times when you're doing widescreen, you're cropping so far in, like up above the belt and into the hairline in order to get the frame you want. And if I want a really nice square out of that, I don't just want to bring in the sides. I want to open up the top and bottom. So another thing to worry about, filmmakers, is how will your film look on the Insti in the ads? But in that version, that way of, of laying it out, you've given me hope that this is actually going to make uh, every version that we see better. And it's going to give our filmmakers and creators, video crafters... It's so funny that we still we say filmmakers when we're talking about things like Instagram, but it's the only phrase we have really. But the people who are doing this stuff, I, it, we're get, they're going to have more options and they're going to be able to give us more diverse quality looks. But like you said, I guess it's more to worry about. But I think that's actually good and cool. On that theme of flexibility, our next tech news story is about RAW. And as most filmmakers know, when you're shooting RAW, you're giving yourself more flexibility in post. You can't go in and totally relight, but things like small exposure changes and small white balance changes, much easier with a raw file format than a ProRes or shooting, especially to something like H.264, you have way less flexibility. So filmmakers like to be able to shoot raw when they can. Obviously, it causes some more headaches and posts because you need bigger hard drives and a more powerful computer, but computers are catching up and hard drives are getting cheap and raw is becoming a real option. However, until about a year ago, RAW was always a proprietary format. You had Canon RAW and Airy RAW, and, and you had Red RAW. There were probably some others. Fuji never had its own RAW. Panasonic had a RAW. So you had all these RAW. Oh, and Sony RAW. XOCN, the optical camera negative format. So you had all of these formats. They were all proprietary to an individual camera maker. But in film, we like common formats if we can, right? Everyone loves the PL mount. It shows up on lots of lenses, lots of cameras. In post, we all use either DNX or ProRes. ProRes was invented by Apple, but it's used in Premiere and Resolve. You can even use it in Avid, technically. We like a common format. It gives us a lot of flexibility. It gets a lot of technical people to invest resources and time and making workflows around it. And then last year, two great common formats came out. ProRes RAW from Apple and Blackmagic RAW from Blackmagic. Both of these formats are designed to be roughly equal in file size to just shooting straight to ProRes. There was an open RAW format before that Cinema DNG. I literally know no one who ever shot a project in it because the files were just too big. Like We would shoot tests in it sometimes, but the files were just whoppers. But ProRes on Blackmagic RAW, the files were like a reasonable size. You haven't seen cameras roll out ProRes RAW yet because Apple and Red are fighting that patent war. But Atomos with their Shogun re recorders and DJI with their Inspire, you could shoot ProRes RAW and work with it in post. And Blackmagic, they've been really pushing their format with like, we're going to be open. Any camera manufacturer can use it. We have spec sheets. We have white papers. Please support it. They've been really pushing it to be the other one. And um, which is good for them. Blackmagic is very good about like, we want to play well with everybody. However, for the last year, if you shot ProRes RAW, you had to use Final Cut 10. And if you shot Blackmagic RAW, which so far is only being shot with Blackmagic cameras, but that includes the very popular Blackmagic Pocket Cinema cameras, the 4K and the 6K, which are like everyone is obsessed with and they're everywhere. If you shot Blackmagic RAW, you had to work in Resolve. Just last week, and, you know, both these announcements were like a day of each other. So clearly, I think both companies knew what the other company was up to. 
Uh, Apple announced that ProRes RAW is now supported in Media Composer and Premiere. And Blackmagic announced that if you download the new Blackmagic RAW 1.5 update, it now works in Blackmagic RAW through a plugin will now work in Premiere or Media Composer. Now, first off, I'm just going to say what I always say. Media Composer can say all they want that they officially support something. Media Composer is a wonderful tool, but it is at its happiest with the NXHD MXF files. So whatever you shoot, fire up Resolve and make some DNXHD MXF files and Media Composer will be happy. So it is not, it's nice that the support came to Media Composer. Very few people I know ever work with anything except DNX and Media Composer. Media Composer is really a DNX tool. Do you think it's um, buggy? Is it what, what happens if you try to take your ProRes RAW right in? It is unpredictable in its media linking. So uh, the, the beauty of Media Composer, the reason why Media Composer is still so popular is the ability to like close a bin, share a bin with someone else, have four people on a shared server, opening and closing bins. And that requires a really robust ability for Media Composer to successfully keep track of where that media is and bring it into certain projects in certain times. I have seen it work best when working in DNX MXF files. It just like effortlessly does it. It knows where it all is. It is, it is fine. On a single user system where you're like, it is just me, I am alone. I'm not working with anyone else, and I'm never moving the project anywhere else. Can you probably use Red? Because they have a Red Raw handler, and they have uh, other handlers for like bringing in ProRes stuff. Can you bring that stuff in? You can, but I, I still, I still remain old school in Media Composer. You're going Media Composer, just transcode everything to DNX. You'll be happier. It just works. It works so well. Just do the thing. And if your camera lets you shoot straight to DNX, just do that. DNX is a great format. Um, but Premiere is a program where their like, flexibility is part of its thing. You can bring in H.264 files. You can bring in ProRes. You can bring in DNX. That's part of its deal. And, you know, raw files are still going to need more processing time. They're still going to need more, you know, it's going to be more demanding on your computer. But the fact that now with Premiere, you could just bring a ProRes RAW or a Blackmagic RAW straight into the timeline. So if you did a two-camera shoot and one's a pocket 4K shooting Blackmagic RAW and the other is a... EVA1 shooting to a Shogun Inferno um, ProRes RAW, you could edit them together and four hours later without doing any transcodes, do a finish and get it uploaded to the internet. So for fast turnaround kind of stuff, it's kind of interesting. But there's a big hole in both of the release cycles, which is Blackmagic RAW is not going to be supported by Final Cut 10 yet. And Resolve isn't supporting ProRes RAW yet. <laughs> so they're making it available for everybody but each other. That's the... Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've I been accused of being a little Pollyanna and seeing the bright side in life a little too easily. I don't think it's that dark. I mean, for Apple and Pro, uh, Blackmagic worked together really closely launching the eGPU. And, you know, when they released the new Mac Pro, Resolve was a big part of that presentation and worked apparently closely with the company on integrating their software to that hardware. And Resolve notoriously works best on a Mac, according to lots of people. Um, although obviously Resolve on Linux is a powerhouse as well. I honestly think this. Apple's thing is not playing well with others. That's not Apple's game. Um, Apple will play well with others when they feel like it, but like, you know, Final Cut 10 is never going to be a software that's like, bring any footage in. Like Final Cut 10 is ProRes software. And anything else you bring in, it's going to background transcode it to ProRes. Like that's... Its whole thing, its marketing angle is not we play well with everybody. Blackmagic's marketing angle is 
Blackmagic, you can have a project cutting in Premiere Media Composer, bring it over by XML or AAF to resolve, keep working on it, color it, bring it back to Premiere Media Composer with XML with XML or AF. You can even do that with Final Cut. You can take it over with FCP XML. Like Resolve's whole thing is we play well with everybody. Resolve at the moment has two different timelines. You can either have a cut timeline, which is like a magnetic timeline, or the edit timeline, which is your traditional timeline. Resolve wants to play well with people. And I think they're going to roll out ProRes Raw, but I don't think they are not doing it despite Apple. They're the smallest of the four companies. Um, you know, Apple is like the second biggest company on earth. Uh, Adobe and Avid are pretty big. Blackmagic is still pretty big, but they're the smallest of the four. And I think it's just dev time. I just don't think they have the devs to roll out every feature all the time. And I honestly don't know that ProRes RAW is being shot that much yet. Because right now, in order to do it, you need both an Atomos and like an EVA1 or an FS7. Most EVA1 or FS7 owners already have other workflows that aren't built around ProRes RAW. I think ProRes RAW is really going to take off next year when we see a lot of Panasonic S1H and Nikon Z6 shoots because those both do ProRes RAW over HDMI. And I have a sneaking suspicion that that's that Blackmagic's just making a, a bet where they're like, all right, we're going to keep our devs on other stuff. And then when, when those cameras take off, when we start to see a real big push for ProRes RAW, then we'll worry about integrating it because I... I bet if they integrated it right now, people would test it, but probably not even use it that much. Because I see way more Blackmagic Raw in the world because of so many, how many people I know who've bought a Pocket or an Ursa Mini. Um, I see way more Blackmagic Raw. I've only ever run across ProRes Raw in tests. Blackmagic, if they were going to have ProRes coming into to Resolve, is their business model largely like, we want more people using Resolve? Is that the motivation for that? Right, because they're because they're also a camera maker and they're a Black like they, Magic's business model is we want to sell hardware. Yeah, it makes sense that it's not a priority, right? Because it doesn't affect yeah. the sale of hardware. Like it cameras. doesn't affect the sale of hardware, like cameras. I think they will roll it out because they are the dominant color grading platform, and if, even if you cut in Premiere or Media Composer, you still almost always color and resolve. It is the best coloring tool by uh, head and shoulders, except for like base light and film light, but those are very expensive. Whenever so, we come back to that part of these conversations, I always think, I wonder what it'll take for Black Magic if they have such a strong footing on color and color grading to get people into them as the whole post-production workflow. Like if they're going to end up in Resolve, like how close to and And that's why I guess the ProRes Raw question becomes important. Yeah, right? because... What what Blackmagic wants is end-to-end -end you're in this one piece of software because then they're selling ho hardware for every piece of software. And if ProRes RAW takes off as a capture format, they're definitely going to support it so that people can edit in it, it natively. Because if I'm out there and I already own an Atomos and I already own a, and if I got an EVA1 or an S1H, I would love to shoot ProRes RAW all the time. But it would be really nice to cut and resolve because I'm moving most of my editing to resolve. I now teach editing almost exclusively in resolve. We moved our intro to edit class here at Fierstein entirely over to resolve. Like resolve is coming as an editor in a very aggressive way. And they're making a really big training push. They're making a real like, why don't you always just have it in one piece of software and you don't have to round trip? Because it's push. free, right? And I think, yeah, because it's free free um you can pay 300 dollars for the studio upgrade so i i think it is inevitable that resolve will support black 
ProRes Raw. Everything in life is about making calculations on like how, when will I do this thing? Can I put this off till later or do I have to do it now? And I think if you're Blackmagic and you can spend a little bit more time working on like really cool AI assisted footage breakdown tools, like that thing they showed at NAB that uses face detect to look at all the faces in your footage and creates bins for you of each character based on face detect. Yeah. Like that's a better marketing thing. That's going to get more articles written about you and maybe be used by people, whatever camera they shoot. And I don't know that we're seeing a ton of ProRes Raw capture in the market yet. I think we will. I think it coming to Media Composer and Premiere is a big part of that. I think, honestly, the camera that's really going to make or break ProRes Raw is the S1H. Because Panasonic is so popular with filmmakers. We all have such a warm spot in our hearts for that company. And the S1H is going to be the first really, like, oh, my God, it's within affordable budgets camera that's going to shoot ProRes Raw. And if that camera becomes a hit, which we're all really hoping it will be. I think ProRes Raw by summer of 2020 is a reasonable expectation for Resolve. That's soon. That's my guess. All right. Up next, we have an Ask No Film School about bad vibrations or just vibrations in general. So I'm just bringing it up. So one thing that I do want to say, we do like it if you use your full name, but this one is just from Benjamin. Benjamin asks, I'm looking to shoot some footage on a moving car for a short film. Which gear should I definitely have? I did some research and found out people use vibration isolators. Any brand you recommend? So, so much to talk about here with car work. First off, I just have to say this because I, it, it bears repeating. Car work, so dangerous. So dangerous. People die on car shoots all the time. And here's the reason, especially, that it's extra dangerous. Because routine is actually really safe. Everybody thinks, oh, I'm fine with cars. But most of your life in a car, you're driving like to the same four places. You know how to drive. You're behaving predictably. Everybody else is behaving predictably. And that creates a lot of safety. Film sets are wildly unpredictable. Actors are performing. You're moving the car in order to get a good view of something. So you might weave in the lane to try and get a good view. All of this stuff increases the chance of an accident. All of these things are dangerous. And the first thing you should do is make sure you're abiding by the local laws wherever you are shooting and coordinating with local police. I don't want to hear where you're like, well, you know, my buddy had a pickup truck, so we like strapped the camera to the hood and then we all hung out in the back of the pickup truck um, shooting stuff. Please do not do that. Please. That pickup truck rolls, everybody dies. Please don't. I think also to your point, you said routine is predictable and people feel safe in cars. Cars are not safe. <laughs> oh, yeah. it's not a safe uh every day we're in cars and we you know we've completely desensitized ourselves to the inherent danger it's the most dangerous thing we all do most yeah. likely well unless you ride a motorcycle <laughs> yeah well that's just yeah. yeah we don't need to get into that yeah. craziness i mean that's just being an organ donor <laughs> all right so i will say this so i do have a recommendation for a vibration isolator and that's the kill shock by kessler um not used it, but the specs are really dynamite, a, like really phenomenal looking piece of kit, amazing stuff. But I think you probably don't need it. It sounds a little bit like you're a little earlier in your career. And vibration isolators are really something you start getting into when you're like doing a lot of car commercials where you're like shooting from a picture car to a, um, you're shooting a picture car from another vehicle and you're going to be going 35 miles an hour and you want to really get that vibration out of it and you're, you're on unpredictable roads and stuff like that. It sounds like you're not doing that. It sounds like you want to shoot some stuff that like maybe you're inside the car and shotgun looking out the window and maybe you're going like 20 miles an hour. There, cars have shocks to get rid of vibration. 
and cameras have stabilization um, built into them, uh, image stabilization in a lot of cameras, and post tools have a lot of stabilization. So uh, we've all seen a lot of beautiful footage in movies we've seen where they, you know, they rigged up in the back seat a hi hat on the back seat. They used some ratchet straps to get that hi hat rack down. Then the camera is just pointing out the window, and you're driving smoothly at an even speed, and you can get beautiful shots. You can also rent something called a hostess tray to rig it up outside the window or on the hood. And if you drive smoothly, the combination of a smooth driving and some image stabilization and post, and you probably don't need a vibration isolator. Vibration isolators are great, and if you're doing crazy shots, you should use them. But generally, I think of that as being a tool where you're getting to more sophisticated, complicated driving shots, and you will, the kind of people who should get those are the kind of people who already know which one to buy because they've worked on a dozen of those shoots with other people, and they've rented a bunch of different ones. It's a different stage in your career. You can also look at rigging up a, your image stabilizer to your car. Like, you could, you know, we've all seen behind-the-scenes shots. You can mount a Ronin 2 to a hood mount. And then the Ronin 2 does a lot of vibration isolation for you. And then you can use the remote on the Ronin 2 to do pan, tilt, and zoom. Stuff like that. I mean, honestly, depending upon what kind of shot you want, I think there's even a car mount for the DJI Osmo. I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, where you can just, like, suction cup it mounted onto a car. And then you can use the app on your phone to, like, pan, tilt, and zoom. And the Osmo has stabilization built into it. I'm, like, 90% sure this is a thing. So I would think about starting small, doing some tests about the kind of shot you want, being super conscious of safety and working with applicable local laws. If you need to get a permit, working with the police to get permits. To really find a way to get the shots you're looking for in, like, the safest way possible. I would also say we have a video up on our site made by USC and the Camera Operators Guild that is a bunch of crash test on it, dummies holding cameras on their shoulder in accidents. Because like one thing indie filmmakers are always doing is they're like, oh, well, I'll just like hold it on my shoulder and I'll sit in shotgun and I'll point it out the window and we'll be fine. We'll get our shot in an accident. That camera becomes a projectile, and you should watch this video because it's just a bunch of dummies with their heads flying off because a camera hits it. And in one, the camera then bounces off the dashboard and hits the driver in the face and knocks his head off. Um, so please don't do that indie movie thing where you're like, I'm just going to have a camera on my shoulder and point it out the window. There's ways to make this safe. There's a lot of different things. I think a vibration isolator on a... Um, really well-rigged hostess tray is a reasonable first thought, but you might want to investigate other ways for what kind of shot you want. Something like a really nice DJI Osmo or, you know, there's image stabilization built into the GoPro um, or the DJI uh, Osmo Action. So you can get a suction cup mount for that, mount it on your hood, point out at the angle, and those little action cams can also get surprisingly beautiful footage now. So depending upon what you want, I think there might be more safe and more indie uh, methods you should explore before you go for the big toys. You could always try to use some miniatures and like green screen your windows and, you know, do a completely weird special effect version. That could be fun. You never know. Um, depending on what kind of budget you're working with. And sometimes some of those things like police and permits are extremely expensive and you can get creative. Um, I do feel like, because I totally agree about the safety and I think a lot of us have done uh, very foolish things, but let's not use the French connection as a model for behavior for filmmaking. Oh my God. But I would say um, 
we kind of have gone into dad mode on this question a little bit because we were both I, I, I was thinking about we're we're both, both dads. We were both suddenly very concerned about the safety of what people are doing. But yeah, bad things happen on film sets. It's true. I mean, and, and I the think more there's you a in- certain amount to which that's part of part of being on a podcast. Yeah. Like when I was 23 and a, and a burgeoning DP and someone came to me. I mean, I feel like I was 28 and someone was like, I want to do this shot. And it involves you standing on top of a truck while we drive 45 miles an hour in Santa Barbara. And I think I did it. I think yeah. we rigged a slider on top of the truck. And I just like climbed on top of the truck with no safety belt and like did this slider shot on top of the truck while this actress drove my motorcycle. So like it was her first day on a motorcycle. So like I did stupid <laughs> stuff when I was young. Yes, Because did. I did stupid stuff on my young doesn't mean I recommend you guys doing it because I think about that now and I cringe and we're also on a podcast opening ourselves up to legal liability if we give advice. (laughs) So I'm going to say that I was really dumb as a young man and I do not endorse any of that youthful stupidity. I think that, yeah, I, I, I second that. Um, and I would also add that, um, just (laughs) we've done dumb things so you don't have to. Is another way we oh, could God, put it. Yeah. Like there's just a lot of things you do when you think like, well, we could just get it this way or we could just avoid that. And this applies to so many things, but also like insurance, like get insurance if you're shooting stuff like you, it's so much. It can be such oh, a God. nightmare. Just get insurance. And the horror stories you hear that some of us have been lucky enough to avoid barely. Cross your T's and dot your I's. I've been a line producer on all all, all levels of projects. You just don't want to know. And if it means battling about budget or with directors or, but it would be so easy if I just grabbed this camera and DIY'd it and blah, 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 blah. It's like, there's, you open yourselves up to rack and ruin, literally. So, you know, be careful out there. The shot's never worth it. Like, I think back to some of those shots I put myself in physical danger for. And I think about, like, not that music video. That music video is really cool. But, like, I think about some movies <laughs> I worked totally on. worth it. Like, I worked on, some, I worked on a movie where I was hand-holding a camera in the shoulder mount in the back of a limo. There's no seatbelts in a limo. The driver was terrible. Driving a limo is terrifying. Like, if you're not good at it, and this person was not good at it. I was in the back of the limo shooting this scene in a garbage movie, in a terrible garbage movie for, like, a horrible day rate. And I think about my willingness to do that at 26, and I'm like, I'm worth more than that. I can't believe I did that, you know? So, like, I would just encourage you guys, maximum self-respect in all things. No no shot is worth putting yourself in danger. And, um, yeah, I mean, we're two dads, so you're going to get a very dad perspective (laughs) on safety. But, yeah, like you said, but it's also there's just the, like, we, when you're you're sitting behind the desk talking about it, and you're not out there feeling the, the urge to just go ahead and do it and make it happen. And so it's easier for us to provide that perspective, whereas when you're on set in the heat of the moment, trying to finish, trying to make your days, trying to fit your, into your budget, trying to find a way to get this thing done, and you believe in it because you wouldn't be doing it if you didn't, it's very hard to have the perspective that maybe there's a way to do a car shot that doesn't expose you to a ton of risk but it's worth it's worth trying to keep it in mind yeah so the next time you're on set there and the director is like all right so we're going to strap you to the back of this motorcycle we only have one helmet it's going to the driver you're going to be facing backwards we're going to give you two cameras just picture like george and i and our smiling faces and be like the shot's not worth it man you'll find another way um so, since this is the dad ending, should we say good game? That's how dads <laughs> end, right? Right. Good game, George? Good game, George. Or, like, what are the other, I don't know, dad joke memes of things. 
Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to say good game. I think good, good game. game is like a nice one. That's a good one. Yeah. All right, guys. That's been the No Film School podcast, the No Film School dad cast for another week. And uh, we will be back next week with hopefully no more IBC news, but something else might still trickle out. So have fun making movies. Reach out to us on Twitter if we got anything wrong. Oh, this is plug time. My book came out today. I just got it in the mail. Business and Entrepreneurship for Filmmaking. It's from Focal Press. It's all the business stuff that I had to learn the really hard and painful way when I got into the film industry because everybody in film has to know entrepreneurship stuff. So it's from Focal Press. There's a picture of it on my Insta because I just got it today. So check that out. Um, you can always check out The Week in Film Tech, which is my podcast, Just Tech Stuff. It's like only tech stuff and it's like deep nerd tech stuff. You don't have to hear my opinions on the Joker movie or Dark Gillian there. And, um, you know, Twitter, Charles Hain, Instagram, Charles Hain, all of the places I'm easy to find. George Edelman, uh, Twitter, George Edelman, nofilmschool.com. Check it out. Yes. Read it. Subscribe to the newsletter. Um, and Charles, let's get something up about your book. That's great. We need Woo! to, it, we have to absolutely, That that's an incredible, I didn't know what the subject of Charles's book was, full disclosure. Knowing how to navigate the business of being a freelancer and working in this industry is invaluable. That's something we should cover more on the website. That's stuff that, it, regardless of if it's covered on No Film School, you should probably be out there learning about because it'll give you a huge advantage. So ask us some more questions about that kind of stuff in the boards, and we'll ask it in Ask No Film School. And I've already got two posts I've written to plug the book. So be on cool. the lookout for those. I will get those ready now that the book is available. I'll be getting those ready. All right. Have fun making movies. I'll see everybody next week. So long. Um...